Coming up on Life is a Festival. I've developed an impatience with the cracking up of systematic racism, the systems, the structures, the structural racism, all that kind of stuff. And if we are truly an experiment in our best iteration and here to invent the world anew, then we can't be passive about it. And I feel very strongly that that is actually for burns around the world. I didn't get involved in Africa Burn to start a party where people just had a jaw, an empty jaw, and that was it. For me, the catalytic potential, the event as a vector for change, where fun is the vector, where play is the vector, where accessing your creativity is the vector, all those things, that's my reason for being involved in this. And so for my continued engagement in it, I almost feel an impatience around two primary items, and that is inclusivity and the environment. Hello, my friends and fellow travelers. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. I am your host, Eamon Armstrong. Well, I have just returned from South Africa, where I participated in my second Vipassana meditation retreat. That is 10 days of a silent meditation. And I did it at Dhamma Pataka, which is the only official Goenka-style Vipassana center in sub-Saharan Africa. And it was a beautiful location with tall eucalyptus trees and big purple mountains and a peacock. I named him Elmer. At one point, a large tortoise walked by and came and pulled up a weed at my foot. It was a great privilege to be there. And as always, with that degree of immersion, I learned a great deal. And I will do a podcast relating to Vipassana and meditation in the coming weeks. It is certainly something that has been very important to my personal growth. So stay tuned to a future podcast episode where I go a little deeper on the subject of Vipassana. So while I was in South Africa, I got a chance to catch up with Monique Schies. So Monique is one of the founders and currently on sabbatical, but has been creative director as well as other titles for the Burning Man regional event, Africa Burn. I attended Africa Burn in 2017, which happens a few hours north of Cape Town. Afterwards, I wrote an article about the demographics of that particular event, and I called it Africa Burn, the Unbearable Whiteness of Burning. I'll have a link to that in the show notes if you're interested in reading it. And at the time, Monique was the creative director of Africa Burn, and we had a number of deep, rich conversations about the unique issues around the principle of radical inclusion in a place with a history like South Africa. And since we had that conversation, Africa Burn actually amended its principle of radical inclusion to make it more assertive. And as you'll hear on the podcast, Monique's thinking around both inclusivity and the environment, i.e. the leave no trace principle, have evolved since that time, as well they should. And I think as burners, this is something that we 
must all be aware of. So today on the show, Monique and I revisit that article and we discuss where Africa Burn is today. We start with a conversation about Monique's own experience and how she grew up in South Africa and how she was producing events with the radical Mother City Queer Project during the fall of apartheid, which is really interesting to learn about. We discuss the founding of Africa Burn. It's the second largest Burning Man regional event in the world. And we talk about some of the ways that it diverges from Burning Man. We discuss the challenges to radical inclusivity in South Africa and how the organizers have reworked the principle of radical inclusion to better reflect the need for assertive action in their country. We discuss Africa Burn's new permanent location. This will be their second year on a permanent space, but also how this relates to land rights in South Africa, and also the event's relationship to the indigenous sand people. And finally, we really get into throughout the whole thread of the conversation, this idea of parting with a purpose. What does it mean to make more than just an empty Joel? Joel being the South African word for a hoedown. So Monique has worn many hats at Africa Burn. She has been the creative director. She has been the developmental lead. She's currently on a well-earned sabbatical. She studied environmental science at University of Cape Town. She was a ranger at Umlani Bush Camp and was also a coordinator at Mother City Queer Project before co-founding the South African Regional Burn in 2007. So without further ado, here is Monique. Monique, welcome to Life is a Festival. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to reconnect with you after our connection with the article I wrote in 2017, where you were very bright and provided wonderful quotable quotes for that article, and I'm excited for more today. Welcome to the show. It's so nice to chat with you. Thank you, Iman. It's really good to reconnect again. You were just mentioning your name meaning shoot, Mm -hmm. and I'm aware that you were a park ranger. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I was well a game ranger, you know, in game South ranger. Africa. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Take, taking people out in the to show them the animals for a while. But I also grew up largely in the bush. I grew up in Pretoria primarily, but we went to the bush a lot. My mom grew up in Kenya, so and we had access to a bushveld farm very close to the Timbavati, and I mean in the Timbavati, close to the Kruger National Park. And so I actually often feel that understanding animal behavior in depth has helped me tremendously with kind of the involvement that I've had with a burn. Animals are infinitely more predictable, but yeah, it's an interesting thing. Well, it's a, it's a lot of herding animals. It's like, you talk about it like herding cats, but that's not really fair. It's like herding no. like a number of different animals. It's like a full-on Noah situation. It's an observing, subtle, kind of non-verbal indicators of how someone's going to behave. And and I suppose when you sit in the position that I have been at Africa Burn, it's fairly important. There's almost a Gary Larson-esque kind of thing in my head when I'm at the burn and handling crowds and, you know, various situations is that I, that I almost feel like, you know, we the animals and the animals are on game drive watching us. Well, and the community is quite selective of more animal-like beings in the sense that the people who go to Africa Burn are the people who are already weird and are going to get weirder and are potentially going to have a transformative experience where they may, in fact, even get more weird. Indeed. Um, it's, that's the case out here. I mean, I know that's Burns generally. It is Burns generally. Although I, I, I do feel that with the growth of festi culture globally, I, th- I think that that is one of the biggest challenges. That the Burns, let me be qualify that, that the Burns as catalytic environments face in terms of being able to do the work that they're meant to do because they're not actually just festivals obviously in you know in their best best in their best iteration they are 
spaces of transformation, as you always say. And with the growth of bucket listy festival traveling, there's a consumptive aspect of it that has crept into that space. And I think I would hazard to say, with trying to temper my not rose-colored glasses, <laughs> that there's a danger of that starting to dominate. Mm. Where Jamie Wheel writes about the three Burning Mans. There's the one in, in popular culture, the, the IG pictures, the festy gear, the glitter face, the clean, gorgeous, sexy people out there on playa in front of an artwork. Then there's the one that is utterly inspiring. You go into a space and you see this crazy, mad thing and it inspires you and that's a beautiful thing but the one that we should be aiming for if the burn is to be doing its work in the world and I'm qualifying that as that's why I'm involved is the one that cracks you open mm. when we were talking earlier about when it beats you up a little that's that's when it's doing its work and that's that's what I feel like we we need to aspire to Reaspire to <laughs> recommit, double down on the discomfort, double down on the discomfort, make yeah. it harder. There, there's a great soundbite, yeah. And I'll bring into this moment the particular pilgrimage to the Tonkwa Karoo. Mm-hmm. Part of the technology of Burning Man is the pilgrimage, and people, I, I, I don't really get the trying to fly in and out of Burning Man. The pilgrimage is a huge part of the compression into the container, but Nevada's got nothing on driving <laughs> to Tonkwa Karoo. And I know it's in a new place now, so I'm not sure if it has the it's same. It's Washboard roads. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's guaranteed to get a flat tire. I changed a flat tire on Beautiful. my way in. I insisted that in my attempt to be more masculine in that particular moment in my life, that I would change the tire and made sure someone took a photo of me. Excellent news. <laughs> Did but, you post it on IG? No, of course. I mean, <laughs> come on now. I'm <laughs> Best. I'm human. It was That's okay. I'm, I'm joking. But yeah, the challenge of it, the discomfort of it is so necessary and I hear your point that there's a risk that it gets overtaken by the show and the fireworks yeah 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 so I mean the new site is it's a similar distance to the old one same road actually same difficult path there is something a lot gentler about the actual space on which we have that it it feels more feminine it's held in in a circle of mountains and it's a lot softer actually so yeah for me, there's there's an interesting thing that I want to witness and just watch what that space does to the burn. And that's really just an anthropological thing. You know, the model that the burn is, is we create space and allow what needs to come up to come up within certain agreements. But it is essentially an experiment and we have to commit to that. So, I mean, last year's event was incredibly stressful because everyone has such a deep attachment to the old site, as do I. And they're well-worn routes and there's, and in fact, there's all sorts of territoriality that people have. Like, well, we always camp there and we know that spot and that spot. And and my, I myself, having done the, the art placement and the kind of theme camp placement for, well, since inception and having tracking training and because that site is so variable, like I, I kind of was so attached to every single little like tiny micro habitat and there's that little pan there and a slightly rocky outcrop there. But this relationship with that land and then in a way having COVID in between and then moving over to the new site was quite a nice pause to kind of contemplate the new space and we had these tiny events called eco trips which we took people up to start doing regenerative work on the land and build this relationship with the land which was such a privilege for me as well because during hard lockdown I went and lived out there and just started walking and walking and walking and kind of discovering where we would 
be able to do the, the event and just becoming acquainted with it. My default world training is environmental science so because we needed to do all the environmental kind of diligence around it too and kind of master planning. I'm curious to see how it's going to evolve. One of the things that we had agreed to when we were looking for a new site was that it should have a reveal like Tanqua Town for the first 13 years did. And there is such a reveal, it's just breathtaking. And you can't help falling in love. And I imagine it probably has those same splendid South African sunsets where the rocks light Ludicrous. up. Ludicrous. Ludicrously beautiful, yeah. At, at Burning Man, it's all about the sunrise, but yeah. in Africa Burn, it's all about the sunset. Yeah. Like The yeah. sunsets are just stunning yeah. out here. Yeah. yeah, really extraordinary. I want to talk a bit more about your journey into the co-creation of Africa Burn. I want to talk about the Mother City Queer Project. You do. I do. I yeah. want to talk about the influence of your work with that group on what Africa Burn eventually became. And I think that that's a, a really great starting place. I mean, well, the starting place is about you being a game ranger. That's a great starting <laughs> place. So, But I love, it, it's beautiful that you've had so many touch points. You just mentioned environmental policy. And you've had touch points on just different kinds of skill sets that are, in my opinion, so obviously come into the creation of the space that mm-hmm. is Africa Burn. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about this early event experience and what inclusivity meant in Cape Town at that mm-hmm. time. Well, firstly, leaving Pretoria and moving down to Cape Town was a big moment. I'd grown up in Pretoria, which was the hotbed of conservatism in, in South Africa during the apartheid years. And the first Mother City Queer Project, I think, was in '94, and it was there to celebrate the new constitution. And so so the founder was my cousin, Andre Forster, and his partner, Andrew Putter. And I moved down to Cape Town, and it was just this absolute breath of fresh air to be in the space where, ironically back then, I mean, not ironically, but it's, but back then it was far more mixed than, than obviously where I'd come from. The, these days, Johannesburg is far more mixed than, than Cape Town is. There's that the kind of spatial violence kind of lag of the apartheid planning, which is very ingrained here. I mean, ingrained everywhere, but but somehow I, I feel like spatially that's also affecting the lack of integration in the Cape Town area. But that notion, that mindset change of going, we fighting for rights, because it was such a thing growing up in apartheid and knowing that every aspect of it was not only wrong, it was absolutely reprehensible. And to suddenly have this click in your head where we like, oh, we're celebrating our diversity and we're celebrating our new rights and our best constitution in the world. And let's have a party that turns waste into art, which celebrates that diversity by having all the different dance floors. There was big band music. There were there was deep house. There was trance. There was disco. So it was for everything. It was non-ageist, non-racist, non-sexist, non all the nons. But one of the key aspects was that you had to get together in a team and dress up in the same manner. And so built into that model was this collaboration where people would be having meetings like months before about like what they were going to do with the theme and which was such a, an amazing kind of moment. And for me, that's the thing that operates at the burn as well. I mean, sure, sitting in a house and making an outfit isn't necessarily a hardship, but the shared toil at the burn to create that space is such a key function of of the transformative potential of that space that we create together. Which is why the kind of incoming of the RVs and the, the comfort and the service mentality into the burn is such a problem, in my opinion. Is that in, in that shared struggle, that's where the alchemy happens. But 
I always grew up in a mixture of kind of high practicality science and creativity. My parents were in the theater, but my dad was a mathematician and a Jungian analyst. And my mother, I come from a very large family and my mother was always throwing, I mean, every dinner was 30 people kind of vibe. So kind of crowd management and doing stuff on scale, even when I was young, was just a thing. And so the Mother City Queer Projects, when I moved to Cape Town and then got enveloped into that, was such a formative moment for me and so celebratory. And the other thing, obviously, one of the key things is fun. It was just so much fun. Your head exploded and such visual beauty. But the aim also was to use derelict buildings that had been apartheid strongholds or whatever because we used to live in such a segregated, you know, black people weren't allowed into those spaces. And I'm not saying that the demographic of those events was representative of the, and certainly not in 94, representative of the demographics of the country. But it was, it was a heady moment. It was a very heady moment, yeah. You know, we talk a lot about personal transformation in the Burning Man culture and the experience of going into this container and having something just shift. It must have been wild to be in a country that was doing that, where yeah. it was happening for everyone at once with some people really not liking the change, some people being happy about the change, some people probably wanting it to change in a different way or wanting to take the reins of the change. I mean, it must have been, yeah, the transformative energy at that time must mm -hmm. have been very profound and so beautiful that you were throwing a party in the context of that historical mm -hmm. moment. I, I feel like it's such a lazy question to ask how did that feel. Well, first of all, how old were you at that time? 25? Okay. Yeah. So I'm 50 now. So okay. it was 25 years yeah. ago. So you were really present for it cognitively. Like you were really Absolutely. You yeah. were you had yeah. really experienced what it was like yeah. before that time. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out a less lazy question than how did no, it feel, but it, I want to know how it felt. Okay, no, it did. Okay. It it felt and in fact I still if you ask me that question and I think back to it, I get emotional. Because it was such a heady, amazing moment. But I'm getting emotional now again. So many people were hurt through the process, you know. And they still are because of that horrible system. <clears throat> but it was so beautiful, kind of like because we had lived through these dark times. And like, make no mistake, I'm white and I'm privileged. I was not living in a township and I was not having my rights stepped all over. But... It doesn't mean that I didn't hate that. And I lived in a household that just, I mean, my dad was screaming at the TV every day. And, like, and, and my parents were activists too, as was the whole family. And we were going into kind of townships and engaging and that kind of stuff. And to suddenly have that pressure off, because it felt at the time it was never going to end. And suddenly it ended. And it was just like, this like pressure release was just like, oh my God. And the feeling of absolute infinite possibility was just astounding. So it's quite frustrating and sad now that, that we haven't done that well 25 years later. And I'm not saying we haven't done that well in terms of any kind of global idea of what we should be doing, but that people are still suffering on the level that they are. That is not okay. But it was an astounding time. And having Nelson Mandela as the lead, I mean, the leadership that we had at the time was just incredible. And so, so this click of going from hating every single politician that was taking care of your country 
into adoring every single politician that was taking care of your country was just amazing. I mean, the whole lot of them were just fantastic. And so that was a big kind of moment and a big learning experience. <laughs> it was like, oh, we can love the government and we can work together and we can do these things. But obviously, you know, the systems that were set up persist. And without a massive heave-ho and all the resources and all the intention to turn it around meaningfully and on every level, if that's not aimed at it, it's like turning a tanker in the ocean. It just takes a lot of energy. And, I mean, once it's turned, it's turned. But it's the resources have not been channeled in the right manner in, the, in more recent years. And that's, for me, a very sad thing. And we will definitely today speak about how Africa Burn fits into this experience of South Africa's history and what the principal radical inclusion really means and how that's evolved in the history of Africa Burn. But we shall save that because we have other things to talk about with yes. Africa Burn first. But one thing I do want to say as we're transitioning from this, it's really beautiful reflection from you here, is the idea of the Joel. Um, <laughs> I think that, and I'm going to read something so I read the book My Trader's Heart when I wrote my article in 2017. I read that book as that was part of my sort of inquiry. And here's a quote from that. The Joel was a very important South African concept connoting kamikaze debaucheries. <laughs> it was a cape-colored street term, but all races used it, making it one of the pathetically few things we had in common. Divided we stood, united we joled. I absolutely love that. It's such a beautiful expression and I think we're talking about the Mother City Queer Project as this kind of way where you were cutting your teeth in event production but you were also in this wave of celebration and it makes me think of United We Joel mm. and this idea of joeling. Mm. What does it mean to you to joel? Yeah, joel, I do absolutely love that word and I use it a hell of a lot and what I've noticed with so many people slowly moving to South Africa from abroad, and very often the, the segue is through the burn, is that they adopt that word fast. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a great word. It's a great word. And plus, I, I've only been here three times, and I wish I had a South African accent. I'm always trying to say South African. <laughs> like, now, now. Isn't Just it? now. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> Bry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's the Joel is one of those mechanisms, as he says. It's one of the things that we had in common or have in common. And I think that that's just a human condition thing, is that when you can celebrate together. And for me, the Joel is very close to the idea of play. And play is such a key mechanism in the burns doing their work, in just life, in the connective tissue that grows between us. But that actual word denotes, for me, a, a very raw kind of... This is not a like face jewel kind of thing. This is a real kind of there's a thumping beat and you get down and you're sweaty and you're making eye contact and you're smiling and you're in a space together. You're not actually showing who you are at an event. It's so connective. Yeah. So that's what it denotes for me. But it really does bring up that, that aspect of the importance of playing together as an absolutely fundamental ephemeral moment. It's got to be intense and intensely lived. You were talking about celebrating with cultures. I always feel like you celebrate with cultures, you fall in love with them. Mm. And different cultures have different kind of modes of celebration yeah. and different ways of approaching things. So like in Australia, there's the doof. You know about the doof? <laughs> I don't. Okay, so the doof is like Apparently the legend is that it's from hearing electronic music in the bush yeah, in well, Australia. That's, that's what I would imagine. Um, yeah. But it's from like a party 
where a neighboring woman came over, an older woman who was like fed up with the noise and was like, what's all this doof, doof music? And people loved it and they called them doofs or bush doofs. But it's just funny that we have these different terms that kind of indicate that we do celebrate differently. We have Mm -hmm. different kinds of values. And I think with the Burning Man Regional Network, what I love so much about it is the whole point of the Burning Man Regional Network is to burn in other places in the way that those places most desire to burn. We have this set of 10 principles, which are describe what it's like to burn. The finger that points at the moon is not the moon, but still a finger that points at the moon. And then we grow a burn in a local culture. So Africa Burn is the largest Burning Man regional event. Is yeah. it still? There was there was a moment where I think uh, Midburn was going to be Midburn larger. Midburn was squeaking by? Yeah, I, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But yes, we have a fairly large one. Well, I'm interested in two things, which is to talk about the regional network, what it means to create a regional burn, but Mm. then also your access to how you connected to Burning Man culture. It's interesting for me because I went to my first Burning Man. I left Mother City Queer Projects in 2003. I did my last one. And I was quite sad about it. It itself had, for me, my experience of it had become... It wasn't really doing the work because the art started leaching out of it and it was just party, party kind of vibe. Still a beautiful event, but it wasn't stimulating me because I actually approach these things. I don't love being an event organizer and I actually don't consider myself such. I can do that. I can do the mechanics that organize an event, but I'm doing it for for its change potential. It really is. They're great change vectors. And so... I'd also just finished university and as you know, I studied environmental science and one of the, one of the kind of mind things in your head when the sheer size of the problem environmentally in the world can render you quite useless and anesthetized as to what to do and where to start. And those all feel like a fight. You're going to have to fight for this. You can fight for rights, fight for the forest, fight, 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 fight. Whereas if we revert back to our celebratory natures, I felt like that is more of a potential for a mindset to change environment. And so I left MCQP and in 2004 ended up at my first Burning Man. And there was a, I think possibly my first experience of Burning Man wasn't necessarily the same as others where they go, oh my God, this is amazing. It was, yes, it was amazing, but it was something that I was fairly accustomed to watching people do the collaboration and the creativity, etc through hard grown up and and then done MCQP. But there was a very deep bodily moment of like, okay, this makes sense. And I truly believe that that's because what's at play at Burning Man in its best form is archetypally available in all of us. And all that happens is that it creates a space in which that can arise and reignite if, if it's gone dormant in the default world, etc. And so... So to a degree, I almost feel like the regionals are also just archetypes. And I very often get that question is, how do you see Africa Burn as different from Burning Man? And I'm like, well... That is one of my questions. I have okay. that question on my <laughs> Okay. And, and obviously it's scale. It's very clearly scale. But I, And I've contemplated a lot. But And also, you know, at this juncture, our 50% of our f- attendants are participants are foreign. And so, so to say that we are different from Burning Man... I feel it's a little bit of a stretch. It's a burn. We co-create. The cultural content might be slightly different. The attitude might be slightly different. It took a long time for people to get naked at Africa Burn. And 
that kind of thing. There's loads of little kind of tiny examples. But the key is, is that we're going together and we are creating a space together and it's such a generative space and it's an intense space. It's a portal through which people leap into aspects of themselves that may have gone dormant or that need rubbing up against. And that's why it's so important that the environment is challenging and you find solace with your friends. I mean, for me, the best times at Burns are when the weather is beating the shit out of you and you do go into a tent or you take kind of refuge in a RV or a caravan and everyone's packed in there and you start singing and it's you have this hyper-connective kind of shared struggle kind of moment. Isn't that interesting how when there's bad weather and you're all huddled in a place, you end up singing? Yeah. It happens to me every time. See, architects. Yeah, we, we, you like, <laughs> like with the, it's like I was at a further future and the rain was like beating down. It was like a total deluge and we were all like huddled in a tent. I was like, well, let's, let's just sing. <laughs> so it's quite fun. It is, it's great. And so anyway, I'd, and so when I got back from the States, I wrote in my diary a list of things that I thought I wanted to try because I wanted to do something different for a moment. And number three on the list was start a burn in South Africa. What, what was one and two? I can't remember. I think, the one, I think one was making very clever, mind-altering documentaries. Not mind-altering, mind-changing documentaries that would communicate some things, absolute trees. I can't remember the other one, actually. It was not accomplished. Yeah, but, but the Burning it, Man, yeah. but the making a regional burn was. Yeah, so I'd had that intention, and then I didn't even know that the regional network existed. And um, one day my phone rings, and it's a man called Paul Jorgensen who had grown up in South Africa, gone to America to avoid conscription, and had then wanted to return to South Africa to bring a burn here. And he had been speaking to Larry Harvey and Stephen Rasper and all the right people there. And he came here and I had met Robert Wynack through Mother City Queer Projects. He used to sell tickets for us in his gallery. And Robert had gone to school with Paul. And Robert said, oh, you must speak to Monique. She's considering doing the same. And so we got together and then we pulled together kind of a bunch of loose nuts and started the Africa Burn. I mean, I honestly thought I was going to be busy for six months and it's been 16 years now. So that was a surprise. 16 years. 16 yeah. years of, of hurting all manner of animals. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to not hurt them, actually. Although you say that Africa Burn is not so different than Burning Man, than the Gerlach Regional, pardon me, I do feel like, so I've done, I've done the Borderland in Scandinavia, Africa Burn and Burning Man. So those are my three. Okay. Um, I think that's uh, a good, that's a good mix. It's a nice, nice cross section. Yeah. I feel like I need to throw in like Korea or Japan yeah. or something in there. But it does feel like these are beautiful gardens that grow the flora of their land. Mm. You know, it's like mm. the landscape is particular to each place mm. and there is something different that happens. And yet it is that creative spark and that energy and that vitality is consistent. And so, I'm curious if there are any quirky cultural things that mm. pop up in Africa Burn. The bigger picture for me is that the context in which it takes place is fundamentally different. And by that I talk about the availability of money. I don't want to be presumptuous, but but from what I can witness... I see that the ingenuity and the resourcefulness that's required of doing it with a lot less 
monetary resources results in something that might be more raw. And it's probably just Burning Man in the 90s. I mean, we, we call the people who come from afar time travelers because we feel like they want to experience Burning Man back then because it's smaller, there's something a lot more kind of raw. I mean, what I do love about it is that we have, you know, we under-resourced this country, so we don't have a lot of cops around. And we have an extremely supportive government behind, they want to help because they know that it's a great thing that happens. And we have eventually done the kind of research and shown how much money it brings into the local economy, etc., and stuff like that. So we have the support from the local authorities and national authorities. So that's that's really pleasing. But it, it, there's something slightly more lawless about Africa Burn than, than Burning Man. But there's also fires, a lot of brying. Brying is a big thing, as people cooking meat, barbecuing, as you would, if, you know, if you don't understand what the word but brying is. I'm just trying to think what else in terms of the small quirky stuff. Yeah. No, I think that lands. I, I, what I was going for with that question is just the the flavor of Africa burn for mm. those that can't make it here we've, mm. or haven't been and want to go. Mm. But we spoke of those absolutely stunning sunsets and the long washboard road to <laughs> to the Karoo and and yeah, just trying to capture the flavor a bit. And it's sepia in color, so we don't have we don't have white arts, We have beige arts. Does it? Is it? I don't remember it being super dusty when I was here before. No, it, it depends. I think you had a, a good weather year because the, on the old site we were on exposed shale bedrock. We don't get as much powdery dust as Burning Man does. And in fact, last year's event, and I think it was because we had such a hard time through COVID and everything, is is the universe conspired to give us the best weather we have ever had for eight consecutive days in the Tankwe. It was just. There was the tiniest amount of wind. It was just glorious. I don't think I wore a jacket once. It was really beautiful. Yeah, we were very lucky. But it's a village. You can walk around the city three times in a day and and re-see each other over and over again, which is fun. I remember Jalapeña and DA coming and they, they were like gobsmacked by that. They were like, oh my God, we've seen people three times. It's amazing. Tell me about the sand clan. The Sand Clan is our central effigy, and it's a sculptural representation of a sand rock painting, which is a big torso and many heads and many legs and kind of two arms sticking out, and it is meant to denote a party moving in a direction together. And sculpturally, it's extremely challenging. We thought it was a great symbol, and I do love it as a symbol. <laughs> But what we do do is we give it to different artists every year to interpret. So it's not like the Burning Man, which is almost, for want of a better word, logo-ish. We call it we call it our signifier. But we've had really radical kind of interpretations of it, which is quite pleasing in in my opinion. And so it's challenging in terms of like you get very different artist teams to work with, and sometimes they're diligent and work really well, and sometimes they're fairly challenging. But I think it's a great model. Yeah. Each one, teach one. So you have an 11th principle at Africa Burn. And I'm curious, how'd you get an 11th? I don't know that they gave those out. I know you were allowed to choose an extra one for yourself. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the regionals choose extra principles. Yeah, There's consent, there's gratitude, there's that kind of thing. But we chose that. It was actually in a response. I think we added that in, in around 2012. I can't remember the exact year. 
but it was in response to our exponential growth because Africa Burns growth was a little bit of a surprise and a runaway juggernaut. We really didn't think that it would grow so fast. And that, that was never the aim either. And so getting critical mass of newbies and people considering us as a centralized authority that would organize the event, etc., we were worried about the kind of loss of ethos and we wanted to communicate the importance that it's up to everyone to acculturate people. And so there's no centralized authority. Yes, we have to do that. But it's up to absolutely everyone to, to participate in that aspect of it. Interestingly enough, I think it was the same year that we started limiting our ticket sales because we were just like, we have to be able to, to rein it in and 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 because it's not a numbers game ever. We were running kind of risk of becoming victims of our own success and success denoting growth and the growth model can fuck itself basically. So, yeah. Why do you think that Africa Burn took off so, so well in this place? <laughs> I mean, I have some theories in my head, but I wouldn't be able to nail it down completely. But I think, I do actually think the fact that the collection of people that, that founded Africa Burn were all already in events. There was Mike Suss, who was quite big in the trance scene. There was Lil, who did the Malplas events. There was Robert and myself with the MCQP. And, and so we were very plugged into a renegade creative community. And interestingly, I, th I mean, I do think that most Burns start, their taproot sits in anarchy with renegades. That's the kind of, that's the spark. And certainly that was the case of Burning Man with the Cacophony Society. And so we had a really solid collection of renegades, but also South Africa has got a really solid outdoor culture, like camping, brying, and then you add creativity and everyone was just so excited and it just exploded. And I think probably illegally, it certainly would be the case now in terms of the Protection of Private Information Act. But we, we utilized all of our own personal newsletters and news lists. We put one together and just started saying, look, we, we're wanting to intend to do this thing called Africa Burn. I did a lot of public meetings and was just saying, look, this is an idea. If it tickles you, jump in. And... It was a big surprise that so many people jumped in with such a, a huge amount of participation. And I think the other thing is that it's that global thing of, of I think the burns work so well because it wakes up stuff in us that wants to wake up. It's a space where we like, it's a remembering. It's not a like, here's a new thing to do. It's like, oh, there's a space where aspects of myself that have gone dormant or I've never explored before can wake up and have a happy time. And, and it encourages us to do something. Absolutely. Like it's an activated wake up. Like yeah. you leave a burn and you're like, I'm going to build an art car. I'm going to do yeah. this thing. Oh, you know who should come. Oh, who's yeah. going to love this? Let me, let me bring it. I'm going to bring my family yeah. member. And, you, and you're pushing, you, you're having all of those thoughts through utter exhaustion as well. It's like it takes three minutes for you to get over the exhaustion and start thinking about next year and starting to plan. And so I don't think it's anything specifically that we did. I think it's the readiness of people to want to do that kind of thing. Obviously with some key elements that there were individuals who, who grabbed harder and did, you know, spectacular sculptures from the first year because it was suddenly a space where they could do that. And there's that monkey see, monkey do thing where it's just like, oh, look, look at that beautiful thing. And then there was a, there was a time period where people started getting very from Africa Burn because I think at the first Africa Burn we probably had only about seven people who'd actually been to Burning Man and there were almost a thousand people at the first Africa Burn. So it was overwhelmingly, you know, new. 
and and people just leapt at it. But then then there was a time when people started going to Burning Man, and so then aspects of Burning Man, things that I'd seen at Burning Man before, started coming to Africa Burn, which is fine. Might have been to the chagrin of some folks who were like, "No, it's changing. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. are ruining Africa Burn. There's always someone ruining the burn." It's, yeah, caveat has that great article he wrote about all the the different people who have ruined Burning Man. Oh yeah, and it's like <laughs> turns out it's like thirty four different groups of people, and Burning Man has been ruined every single year. He's such a such a mensch. He is. Um, so I came to Africa Burn in two thousand seventeen, and that was during my time as a journalist in the world of festivals, working with Fest three hundred. And I remember when I arrived. I was thinking about what my offering would be, what I would want to share. And the thing that people brought up and asked me a lot about is the demographic distribution at Africa Burn. Who is attending and who is not? And here we are in Africa, and is this an event that includes African people? And I went into the event thinking, okay, I don't want to touch this. I didn't want to do like the cheap, critical thing. I didn't think that that would be helpful. And I didn't know that I had the chops to really write about it. But over the course of the week and like connecting with people, I decided that I did want to write about it in part because I wanted to learn about it. I wanted to explore it. And I had the privilege of being able to spend two weeks in Cape Town afterwards. That's how we met. We had some great conversations. I got to talk to a lot of people about it. And I eventually wrote an article called The Unbearable Whiteness of Burning. The actual it? title was Africa Burn, it was Africa Burn, colon. Yeah, that's true. Africa Burn, colon. So it was quite specific. It was quite, well, it was specifically about Africa Burn, but yeah, I, no, I, no. What, I, what I endeavored to do in the piece is to point that this was a, a cultural challenge writ large, certainly at the Gerlach Regional. And this was 2017, so things have changed since then. So I'm prefacing that for the listeners of this podcast who may not be familiar with my connection to this subject matter. Things have changed since then, but you so beautifully expressed your passion for the loving integration of this country and the challenges therein. And there's such a balance between creating a decentralized event and encouraging co-creation and letting people motivate themselves for their own transformation and trying to be the good that you want to see in the world, trying to make the change that you want to see in the world. And you have this vehicle that is Africa Burn and wanting it to be an expression of your personal values. So we're starting even just like your own relationship to what you want out of it is already nuanced amongst a vastly nuanced landscape. But I wanted to take some time today to open up this conversation, talk about where we were at in 2017 and what has changed since then, and especially your own personal relationship to this, your own personal relationship as one of the founders to be a steward of a decentralized culture in a place with a very painful history. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's there is the place of the painful history and then there's also the burn, which is a little bit representative. And Africa Burn is the photo negative of in, in terms of the demographic makeup of South African demographics. I think the one thing that I would say that has changed fundamentally for me in terms of what I said in the article in 2017 which so I said a lot of things, but but one of the things that was in there was around I have a patience around the change that's going to happen, and I think that that for me in the interim has changed. Is that I feel like it needs more active intervention, and we have been like all all of the mechanisms that we had utilized at Africa Burn to to try and in any way remediate that massive divide so that 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 examination of what the barriers to entry are 
for people of color. And like you said in the article, it's overwhelmingly a class thing in South Africa because of our radical history. But nuancing it, moving that conversation on from being able to provide people with tickets at a tenth of the price and access grants and welfare grants and utilizing our kind of art grant mechanisms to favor things that had inclusivity aspects into them, challenging every single theme camp. And this is in line with the each one teach ones challenging every single theme camp or creative crew to say, it's not just up to us to overcome the, the divisions in this country. It's up to you as well. And these are the programs that exist. And so, so we saw the snowball starting to happen where Theme camps were going, oh, we didn't know that the Anati program existed. Okay, well, we're going to invite our friends who don't have the monetary means to come to the burn to join our creative crew and utilize those kind of mechanisms that Africa Burn had put. So we saw that snowballing and it was really starting to gain traction and then COVID happened. I'm not sure what the uptake is on the program this year, but I think it's it's going to be fairly large in comparison to last year because everyone's still recovering from COVID. But certainly... I've developed an impatience with the cracking up of systematic racism, the systems, the structures, the structural racism, all that kind of stuff. And if we are truly an experiment in our best iteration and here to invent the world anew, then we can't be passive about it. And I feel very strongly that that is actually for burns around the world. I didn't get involved in Africa Burn to start a party where people just had a jaw, an empty jaw, and that was it. For me, the catalytic potential, the event as a vector for change, where fun is the vector, where play is the vector, where accessing your creativity is the vector, all those things, that's my reason for being involved in this. And so for my continued engagement in it, I almost feel an impatience around two primary items, and that is inclusivity and the environment, because we can't continue to say, oh, we're so great and we do this amazing thing. And we do do this amazing thing. But one of the key things about that experimentation and about collaboration is that when shit's going down, there are ideas lying around that you can start picking up. And we've got to generate those ideas because we are some of the best people in the world doing the most fantastic things. And if you just channel that energy in the right direction, can you imagine what we can do? And it is about inventing the world anew. It's about imagining a different way of being. There's a reason why the word radical is in all those principles. is because, as Larry said, radix, that the root word of it is the root. We're actually going back to how we're supposed to be. And the way that the world is with development and growth and capitalism, etc., is that that idea of us as being inherently competitive is wrong. We're actually inherently collaborative. You just need to read David Graeber, what's that book called? Where they're going through the archaeological record and saying, actually, if you take the kind of survival of the fittest glasses off, you can see that humans are actually fundamentally collaborative. And we just have to explore that kind of freedom to do that. You speak of creating the world anew. I had the privilege of interviewing DC burner and queer activist Nexus on my show quite a while ago. And he brought up a great point about Burning Man culture, which is that if you believe that you have a blank canvas to build the world anew, but you are not able to observe your unconscious biases that 
walk in with you, then you're not building the world anew because you don't have a blank canvas. And in truth, you really just don't have a blank canvas. Mm. There are things that need to be corrected from where you're coming from. And I think that it may be helpful as we look at that not quite blank canvas to look at a couple of things that make this a trickier problem than people might imagine. Mm. And this is some of the stuff that I tried to articulate in the article, but Dear listener, you don't need to read the article. Um, you actually do. It's a really good article. <laughs> well, well no, I reread it and it was great. Well, it really well, was. Yeah. But I, I, for those, you know, you're on a road trip, you don't have time to read it. I want to catch people up because a point I wanted to make is that it's so easy to say, wow, this is like a super white event. Someone's doing something wrong. People must be racist. People must be lazy. That is it's so, that's such a cheap way of approaching it. And for me, when I observed, okay, here I am in Africa, and this is this event in 2017, you said it was like the photo negative opposite. It's a very poetic expression. It's not mine, by the way. It's my colleague Lorraine's. Okay. Well, shout out Lorraine. I wanted to know why it was tricky. And two things that popped up were the history of tokenism and the idea Mm. of tokenizing someone. Mm. Why would someone want to be at your party when you have invited them to your party to be the identity that they are? And this idea of the kind of white savior complex of like Africa burn is going to change the world for people in in South Africa. There's such a balancing act of where the intention is coming to Mm, include mm. and what does that mean? Larry Harvey famously said that Burning Man is not going to have quotas and that's not the nature of this decentralized project. Mm. I left, in writing that article, I left really feeling for how it's hard. Mm. And you mentioned some of the different approaches that Africa Burn has taken, Mm. but I just want to presence that it's not just a matter of burners are racist, for example. Like Mm. That's not... Well, there's issues with generalizations, no matter what you do. It's one of the worst things that you can do in the world. I think it's the root of a lot of evil, actually. And I don't actually like the term evil, but you know what I mean. I mean, certainly at Africa Burn, that the avoiding tokenism has always been an approach that we have. So to a degree, we almost hark back to how we were when we started. And it was just presenting the idea. And if it grabbed you, come. And so to, to a degree, we've done a similar thing where we strategically have been doing talks about the burn in places that are not classically white. So when we started the burn, I mean, there was a handful of us doing it. It was extremely like we were extremely challenged and we would do it in observatory or Cork Bay or wherever. And it was very overwhelmingly white, the audiences. So the idea wasn't being presented necessarily in the right spaces. So for example, we did this whole Northern Cape tour and we were quite strategic about not going to cultural centers in old white areas, but going to cultural centers in what were classically townships or black areas, which still are. And going, this is the idea, only if it grabs you. Because it's got to speak to something in you. We don't want to falsely get quotas in, for example. These are the mechanisms by which we can grease the way for your participation in the space. I mean, the other thing that we've been doing is not only like examining what the barriers to entry are, but what the experience in that space is. Because... There's one thing about getting people to the desert and going, oh, look, now there's a lot more people of color there. But what do we need to examine? What do we need to, what are the more nuanced things that we need to understand about being a person of color 
and in that space in the minority and what is that experience and what kind of knobs do we need to twiddle to see what we can do around that and I mean in terms of what your previous point about the blank canvas is that yes the, the blank canvas is a notion it's only ever going to be an idea you, there is no such thing as a straight blank canvas or pure objectivity so what we do is that we always have to take our own reflexivity with us and a humbleness and a curiosity and even if it just sparks the tiniest little thing, I mean, it's a bit glib, but the butterfly effect, if there's just one little thing that can turn here and turn there, it might have a bigger effect later down the line. But we've got to, we've got to do that and we've got to do it with reverence from where we are coming from and where we want to go without being too attached to the outcome. Because that, I mean, anyone who's attached to an outcome at a burn is only going to hurt themselves, basically. And so, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Well, we're exploring together at this Sorry. moment, which is, it's less a question and, and more just to be in the presence of the challenge yeah. and yeah. the pieces that, that listeners might not recognize yeah. when they look at it in a more like, dare I say, black and white kind of <laughs> perspective. Yeah. For me, my gratitude and what I learned when I was writing that article around the nuance about this particular issue and, and how it made me look at, at Burning Man in the US. Mm. And Obviously, we in 2020, we had the murder of George Floyd, and that really was a galvanizing moment for the Burning Man organization, which created some yeah. new initiatives, yeah. like yeah. the Ride Initiative, for example. But Africa Burn actually did something prior to that. And I know that you were the author of this. One, uh, one of the one authors. Of, yeah. One of the authors, pardon yeah. me. You're one of the authors. And that was to actually amend the radical inclusion principle and yeah. actually make it specific for the goals of Africa Burn in this moment. Yeah. So this is from April 2019. This is the amended principle of radical inclusion for Africa Burn. Everyone should be able to be a part of Africa Burn. As an intentional community committed to inventing the world anew, we actively pursue mechanisms to address imbalances and overcome barriers to participation, especially in light of past, current, and systemic injustice. We welcome and respect the stranger. Anyone can belong. And there's, a, there's some really specific shifts in that language. And mm. it, I think it really mm. takes it from passive inclusivity to radical inclusivity. Mm. The principles are kind of the, the bone structure of this experience. So altering a principle in this way, what sort of effect did that have? And how did that change the way the organization were throwing this event? What was the effect of this? I think that it, it went the other way around, actually, is that we were doing all of that work. And I, I know that every time I did a public talk, and particularly one of these where I was talking in spaces in classically non-white areas, and I'm sorry I'm using these terms, but the spatial divisions still exist in South Africa. The spatial and, and class divisions still exist. But that every time... I went and I would quickly run people through the principles to explain what this animal is, this weird thing called a burn. And every time I hit the radical inclusion principle, the level of discomfort that I felt around that, and it's not about me, but that that was a big kind of like, guys, we can't be doing this work and have that thing say that. Particularly not in this country with its history. But what I want to say is that it's actually true throughout the world. I mean, 
that that has become abundantly clear. We were just the absolute kind of poster child of reprehensible kind of system, systemic injustice, really. And I think we still are. But it exists around the world. But we had started all of those kinds of processes and policies and things like that and then caught up with the principle. So actually, I'm not quite sure how it has affected things because I haven't had a first-hand experience of it. However, I think that it's completely more more appropriate. I certainly, when you read it out there, I was just like, yeah, absolutely right. It feels much better. And where people are referring to the principles which are the exoskeleton and the foundational stuff, it feels like it's giving a much better message. And I think our challenge is to just carry on engaging with, as an intentional community with that. And actually on the back of that, I just want to say that I, I just want to acknowledge that I am a white woman, privileged woman in South Africa speaking about race. And there is a discomfort that it's me having this talk, not a person who's had that actual experience. That's a tricky one too, though, because you also don't want to put emotional labor on on others as well. So I think that the fact that we are speaking about it to the best of our ability is important. Mm. And that we are speaking of shortcomings that that we both have in our understanding and Mm. how entering more deeply into this inquiry actually is part of the transformational process. Mm. Which to me, that was where I landed in the article that I wrote, which is... Burning Man at its best is on the frontier of cultural change. Mm. And it's fun when that's LSD, but it's a little trickier when that's identifying one's own privilege in the world Mm. and wanting to commit and recommit and recommit to changing things, to Mm -hmm. making the world a better place, to being more inclusive in a real way, in Mm -hmm. a way that actually matters. And so I think it is very important that us white folks have these conversations amongst Mm. ourselves as well. I mean, I think that the worst thing to do would be to say nothing at the fear of saying it wrong. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And I think that happens a lot too, is people are just like, God, I don't want to be thought of as like a bad white person, so like I'm not going to bring up any of this stuff. That, I think, is we can't do that. Mm. We have to try. Mm. I, I I totally agree with you. I mean, I said that because I wanted to bring my own reflexivity to the space and say, I am saying... Because I do care an extreme amount about this. And I do want to talk about it. I really do. And I really appreciate the engagement on it. Well, and that's that's kind of like the foundation of our of our friendship too. It's like <laughs> it's true. this is how we met. Was yeah. I was like, can I? How are we going to write about this? What do we do? Like, yeah. How do we? How can we talk about this to forward things to yeah. make things? And interestingly, yeah. at the time, I remember going, "Who's this American coming in <laughs> wanting to talk about how white Africa burn is?" Because I'm mean to Burning Man. <laughs> it's not exactly a mixed kind of scenario, but obviously, in our engagement, it had integrity and and deep thought, and yeah, it was a good piece. Yeah, so, and I'm curious. And a good subject to talk about. Well, yeah, and and in terms of our conversation today, I didn't want it just to be this conversation, but I wanted to make sure that we really... I don't know why I want to say it this way, but I wanted to, I felt I wanted us to waddle around in the trickiness of, like, how are we leaning towards mm. the best versions of helping to heal this deep colonial wound Yeah, yeah. in our small human selves? Like, how do we lean into that healing? You, you, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that it really there's a lot of energy and effort and time to to turn this great barge, this great ship and point it in a direction to the arc of justice. Like that's a lot of work. But 
we should be doing it with things mm. that are to to some might look like a party, but is actually much more about the exploration of the human spirit and the possibility of transformation. Mm. We have to be doing it in these spaces, mm. and and certainly at the the big regional event in America as well. <laughs> yeah, and I mean the party aspect of it, I think, is important, but that's not its primary. It's secondary. So all those other things that we've been talking about, those working together and co-creating space together and imagining the world anew and trying to aim in that direction, etc., toiling together, getting through hardship together is primary. And what comes from that is the celebration and the partying. Like, so they, they're friends, in my opinion, and but partying, the act of dancing and having a lovely time together, that is... It's as a result of the first part. It's so exultant when we earn our yeah. party. Do you know this concept type one and type two fun? No. Type one fun <laughs> is type one fun is fun that is just obviously fun. Type two fun is fun that is not necessarily fun while it's happening. Like you're on this long hike and you get lost and you're trudging up a hill and like at the time you're not you, the experiencing self isn't necessarily experiencing it as yeah, fun, yeah. but the remembering self yeah. thinks it's super fun. Yeah. And I think that type two fun burning is definitely in many cases type two fun where you're like that was the most fun ever. It's like I feel like you were like crying in the tent all day. <laughs> I know, but then. I, uh, I love that. Yeah, that's that's a really good distinction. Yeah, type, I've had I've had a sailing trip like that. <laughs> I, I feel like every sailing trip I've been on is like that. I'm not like a big like water dude. I hate being stuck on boats. Not relevant to this conversation, but I just I get on these boats and then people are like, "We're going to be out for nine hours with no shade and pumping house music all day." <laughs> Lord, oh, that's hilarious. So, I think a good way to bring our conversation to a close today is the thread we're talking about now is this idea of partying with a purpose. Mm. You highlighted both inclusivity and also the environment as the two key issues that are facing Burning Man culture and I completely agree. Mm. I really feel like that's where we can't have patience. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are the issues that need Mm. to be addressed actively. Mm. And a critique of Burning Man culture is, oh, it's hedonistic, it's self-indulgent, it's wasteful, you're sucking up resources to to burn a bunch of shit in the desert. There's a strong criticism leveled at the idea of kind of frivolity. And I've always found that to be like burning man as a technology has a positive impact on the world that is outsized, in my opinion. No, it is. And I wanted, yeah, I would just want to land with an inquiry into how you're feeling about partying with a purpose in 2023 and burning man culture generally. Yeah. I do I do feel and it could be completely my own projection. But I do think that Burns, Reed, Burning Man, Africa Burn, are at an inflection point. And I, and I think that they are responding well. But I think that us as the kind of custodians of it, I mean, it's interesting because obviously this movement has got its taproot in anarchy, and which literally means no government. Yet we are at a point in the burns where the mechanisms that make it so meaningful are at risk of being diluted, dumbed down, whatever. And specifically, I'm talking about kind of convenience culture and services, the service mentality coming in, the overproduction of that space 
And certainly I felt that at, at my, my experience at Burning Man this year and actually in 2013, I had a long patch where I hadn't been to the burn. And I remember feeling like something's not landing for me, like I'm not feeling in this space. And what is it? There's something bothering me. And I went off and took myself away to try and work it out so that if I could work it out, then I could work out what was bothering me. And it felt like everything was produced professionally. I couldn't sense the human endeavor in it. And that could be because at Africa Burn, I know every single human story behind most of the artworks and I climb in there and we have a very high touch kind of approach to working with the artists. So I knew the personal drama behind every artwork. Whereas at Burning Man, I was just sensing like, oh, well, that's a professionally done thing. And certainly there's this plug and play culture in, in camps, etc. But there's also plug and play culture starting to grow in art. And so these kind of the kind of evolutionary point at which they are. And that's just because I'm super over analytical about these things because I do come at it from a philosophical point of view. That's catnip for me. I like to roll around in that shit. So Same, same. 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 Yeah, I'll read that. <laughs> it's like literally why we're here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But back to the kind of taproot and anarchy thing is that then the irony is, is that we, the organizers of and the custodians of, end up becoming the establishment, the fuzz. And we're doing things like going, okay, well, actually, we need to turn this ship in the ocean, so let's put these kind of policies and strategies in place, and we're doing this and we're doing that. But we are custodians of it, but how do we turn it towards being the more decentralized, open source thing that is what makes it work? But then I'm, there's the question of like, what doesn't make it work? And for me, it's a little bit of like, well, we need to look at those mechanisms. We ha need to have a proper deep self-reflection of what those mechanisms are that make it into a catalytic, alchemical, beautiful thing that does do the third burn that Jamie Wheel described, that cracks you open, that does all those kinds of things. And it doesn't have to do that every single time, but that it's still doing the work in the world that we wanted to, that, you know, you're not getting 8,000 luxury RVs with thumping generators spewing out fumes so that people can sleep from, what is it, 7 in the morning after having danced the sunrise till 2 in the afternoon where they come out and do the same cycle because that's not proper participation in my point of view. But I don't want to be too judgmental around that, but I am analytical about it. So it's a bit of like humble self-reflection around those things and then being brave enough because the people who started the burns, who initially started this, and they didn't pre-think it out when they started it. They were just doing beautiful things. And it evolved, or as Buckdown calls it, it's mission creep, you know, <laughs> you know, where it is. So for me, it's a proper moment of self-reflection around how is it that we continue to do that catalytic work in the world, if that's what we want to do. Certainly our thing is invent the world anew and it's a very easy phrase to ask ourselves when we're thinking about a new policy that's going to make things easier and we're like, yeah, but is that inventing the world anew? Yeah. But yeah, I could go on about it for ages. Well, let's focus it on to this question. If you could have a completely self-organized version of the outcome that you most want. So the thought experiment is that it's still self-organized, right? It's not top-down control. But it's the version you most want to see of Africa Burn in 10 years. What would that look like? Well, firstly, because of the model that it is, I would not want to be attached to anything that happened in 10 years' time. 
Fair. Yeah. I would want to know that the first principles were, and whatever the first principles we decide are, are sitting in integrity, which would mean that they they wouldn't be so easily subverted. But yeah, I would definitely not be attached to any particular outcome. But that it would be a place of invention, of collaboration, of renewal, of celebration. Because you see also the individual, like your burn could be completely different. And it is probably completely different from my burn. And I also don't want to prescribe what it is that clicks someone into an alchemical moment or a catalytic moment. It could be that they've just had the easiest burn of their life and suddenly they are feeling so much lighter and they can go back into the world refreshed and they've just had a great time. It doesn't have to be, I always say the struggle is part of the part of the mechanisms that makes it so powerful. But if suddenly you have no struggle and that might be a big learning moment for you because you have a lot of struggle in your default world life, you know, whatever it is, I don't want to prescribe that. I just want to know that it's doing that work. I actually don't even need to know that it's doing that work. Maybe look at my brain going like that. But certainly I think that a proper moment of, of self-analysis around the mechanisms and a lot of workshopping around that because that's a very fertile space is that collaborative time where people come up with all these different kind of ideas and fun and kind of irreverence. But certainly a, a bravery and an experimentation and a celebratory, caring, love-based thing. That's great. I want all things to be that thing. (laughs) I want to be involved in various different things that are that thing. Exactly, yeah. So speaking of a fertile space, Africa Burn has moved to a new location. And I know we touched on this at the beginning of the conversation, but I know a lot of people who attend Africa Burn or who have generally been tracking Africa Burn are interested in this new space. I know that this space was acquired prior to covid and that you've had one burn on the property. Is that correct? One burn on the property? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. 2022 was our first burn there. Okay. So this year feels like it's like really beginning to land in this new space. So I just wanted to spend a moment to talk about the new location. First of all, why move? The decision to move was a very long time coming. Certainly for myself, from very early days of Africa Burn, in my mind, I had thought that we would ultimately get our own piece of land And that had absolutely nothing to do with the previous location, which was filled with love and we energized that space and it was so kind of facilitative of our launch and our becoming. And and it just felt like there's a multitude of reasons why we decided to move, but I'll try to run through them kind of quite briefly. But as renters, we were there very briefly. And so, so being able to do things slower and more considered and integrate in our operations, all that idealism that we want to bring, your kind of circular economy systems, the way that you set up, being able to support your creative community much more. Having a 365-day-a-year home in the desert, I mean, in the short time when we've been absolutely under-resourced, we've been able to institute a lot of that stuff. So processing the kind of sewage into humanure and putting in solar systems but then also just this this very kind of deep relationship with that piece of land but in a very precede version is around our own organizational efficiencies and our idealisms a huge aspect of it was being able to support the creative communities and the, the environmental imperative is massive as well and having our own water 
also space. We needed a bit more space. And because there, there were definitely limits to our kind of physical growth at Stonehenge. And certainly this piece of land has its challenges in terms of our layout, etc. But, I mean, stuff that we can just handle. But there's a lot of agency and a lot of beautiful engagement with that space already. And it's super, super inspiring. I mean, just the beauty of it just takes your breath away. And Monique, I know that you have a deep connection to land throughout your life, throughout your career, studying environmental policy, growing up as you did, spending all of this time in the bush. I understand from you in other conversations we've had that the relationship to land in South Africa has its own issues and its own challenges. And so I think many creative communities dream of owning land, you know, Fly Ranch, for Mm -hmm. example, dreams of, of creating an ongoing space that can be that canvas that is built on over time and that it is healthier for the environment in many ways to be able to have these, as you say, circular systems. But there's also issues with land use in South Africa. And I wonder if you could express a little bit about that and how the Africa Burn organization relates to that. Yeah, it's very distinct and it's a very, very condensed version of the kind of dispossession that's happened all through the world. The Americas is not not free of the kind of dispossession of people of their land. But certainly in the South African situation, it is more distinct and more brutal and more, you just cannot ignore it. And so if you're an organization and a movement, in fact, we're not an organization. We first and foremost, in our best iteration, we're a movement. And if we are idealistic and if we are about inventing the world anew, then kind of engaging around the issues of land dispossession in the South African context, especially with regard to, as I'd spoken about earlier, about the environmental imperative and the inclusion issues. And land land very much is the foundation of that in South Africa. You know, land dispossession, it was first put into law in 1913, but obviously it was happening long before that in the country. But some of the most brutal moving of people off, off the land and So going back to my point about not being too attached to outcomes, there were two things that I said there which I feel that come into play in how we deal with this piece of land, and that is the bravery and the care. Because also, again, in the best iteration, I feel like the burn is about caring and inventing the world anew, and the absolute crazy-ass pot of boiling cleverness that happens at Burns is where that moment of invention can come from. And that's the bravery part of it, but it's got to be coupled with care. And in South Africa, we've got to do three things. We've got to look at the previous dispossession and the previous disadvantage from this. Look at the current still lingering systemic issues around that, because 26 years into land reform in South Africa, and not a lot has changed, not enough has changed. And then just look to a future of more equality. And land in itself isn't necessarily the actual thing that brings prosperity back, but it's a proxy discussion back in the day for around how people supported their lives and their families and their kind of cultural reproduction, etc. So I feel very privileged that we now have access to this land. Africa Burn doesn't actually own it. It was a gift from the Mapula Trust. And so it's actually still in the trust, but we have a 100-year usufruct and a very beautiful kind of agreement with them. But but innovating around how we engage with this land is a very exciting and I think necessary part of our next phase. And not only around 
developing it for burns and more community events and smaller things, but around how we engage with that history and that pain, because there's a huge pain body sitting on that land, not only environmentally, because it's been radically overgrazed. So when we had our ecologists come and inspect the land before we bought it, he said, well, on a scale of one to 10, it's two, two clicks beyond fucked, actually, ecologically. And so using this huge kind of movement that we have behind us and the willingness and the care to do these eco trips where it's all about doing restoration of the land, et cetera, and proving that you can actually do that in that space where there's will to do it. And because we are the community that we are, we can do it with, we can go balls to the wall with creativity, you know, do a whole lot of things that we know will make sense and then try a whole lot of new things. And so that's really kind of it in a pressy. I mean, I could go on for hours about it, but it's absolutely such a necessary wound in this country and in the world that needs to be treated with reverence, humility, curiosity, and care, and bravery, all the things. Related, the emblem of Africa Burn, as we've discussed earlier, is the sand clan. Mm. And I want to speak a bit about the sand people, the indigenous people of this land. What is the relationship that Africa Burn has to the indigenous people of South Africa. I understand that there is a sand camp mm. and I would love for you to share with our audience something about those people and how they're being included in Africa Burn, in the future of Africa Burn, and especially as we've just discussed in the relationship to this land. Mm. When speaking of the sand people, it's really important to just acknowledge that it's not just a kind of cohesive tribal group sitting somewhere, but the People that have been attending the burn for quite a number of years have been drawn from all over Southern Africa, and we've supported them in accessing the event and coming and joining us. The project was initially championed by certain individuals, and then it's just kind of the activity around it has snowballed. But because your your kind of entry point was the Sand Clan, it's interesting because according to South African law, there is no IP attached to sand rock paintings because they are way before any kind of structured version of the law that dealt with that kind of thing. So initially when we were using that, we spoke to the South African Sand Institute and they said, no, you're still in the clear and everything. But there was a sense of discomfort in me and some of the co-founders that we hadn't actually spoken to actual sand people about what we were doing with this emblem of theirs or with this image that comes off from their heritage. So eventually when we did get a grouping of people coming and because we were totally up for changing it if it was not appropriate. And we just explained what this thing was and what we do with the event. And then and they came to the event and they kind of walked around and explored. And eventually they were like, no, we feel very honored that you've used the symbol and we endorse it. And so the sand camp happens every year. I think it's been going on for about eight years, excluding the two years of COVID. So 10 in time, but eight in total. And having their input, for me, it's a very spiritual there's a comfort in it for me, knowing that they are there and that there's also this bunch of people who are getting very integrated into the burn community and they're kind of becoming just part of yeah, part of the community and such a key part of the community. They always do ceremony before the big burns and going to, into trance and it's always very rewarding. And in fact, when we first bought the land, the first time we all went up there, we got a huge posse of them there as well for a good two days and we're just speaking to the land and speaking to the land and kind of giving those messages 
Can you expand on trancing? Can you tell me a little bit more about well, what it means I mean, <laughs> for them to, to be in trance? Because that does sound like a, a state that I am familiar with. Yeah, um, yeah, and I'm curious yeah. how their version compares to perhaps how maybe some other burners yeah. may yeah. trance. I mean, look, there's different methods because obviously the entire country was was full of sand people. And so they, they come from different corners of the country. But mostly it's usually the rhythmic stomping. And I don't claim to know that much about it, but there's rhythmic stomping, there's chanting, there's fire, there's mpepu, there's sitting in the heat. Like some days we're 44 degrees Celsius and we were all like with wet cloths around us sitting in the shade and they were sitting in the sun and just altering their states that way, kind of just talking to the land, talking to the land, walking a lot, barefoot, you could feel the earth beneath your feet. And then just did a whole lot of ceremony around the springs because there's a lot of natural water, freshwater springs in that area. And it's interesting that we've happened upon this piece of land that, that well, actually it was an eight-year search, but <laughs> that was actually a trek route. And there's a, a hell of a lot of archaeological sites on that piece of land. So yeah, trancing is just altering your state via different practices, um, not necessarily using substances, and then just communicating deeply with Mother Earth and what she has to say. So Monique, I understand that this is your first break in the entire time you've worked with Africa Burn. You are on sabbatical at the moment. You are finally, after 16 years of putting everything you've got into all the different roles that you have done, you are taking a break. I imagine for someone who has operated in the world the way that you have, a break like this must have its own challenges. Yeah, it is very challenging. I mean, it's fantastic. I need this break and I'm really enjoying many aspects of it. However, in my DNA is we should, I should be in critical path right now. And I've also got all sorts of personal issues around helper syndrome and kind of my trauma response being overwork, etc. 16 hours a day. But also it's that whole thing of buying into a big a project that's bigger than yourself. And it is super rewarding. I've, I feel like I've become very accustomed to to really peak intense experiences. And that is that, that beautiful mechanism of the burn is that you're working shoulder to shoulder and you're put, putting this transformative thing on the, on the map. It's interesting not doing that. I've been really engaging with around like, how do I actually go to the burn? Which, because I'm actually going to go to the burn for the first time. And I think the one thing that's making me really excited is the ability to potentially spend a lot more time with the San crew. Because every time I do spend time with them, I feel because one of those Western things is the sped up everything. And I'm having to slow down and listen and actually spend that time, create the space, because essentially a burn is creating space and letting what's going to happen on it. And I haven't done that for myself. And so I'm going to be doing that, that space creation. So let's see what arises, but put myself in the way of those things that are very meaningful to me. And one of them is this, the sand crew that I'd like to spend more time with and engage with deeper. Yeah, I think it's going to be so important for you to have clear intentions mm. entering, mm. because if you don't, you'll help everybody. <laughs> you'll just default into, you'll be holding down tents and dust storms the whole time, right? Am I right? Is that a possibility? Yeah. But like if you go in. Metaphorical tents and metaphorical dust storms. Well, I mean, what <laughs> we're talking ones. what we're talking about is kind of a yin-yang situation. Yeah. So like you are more of a yang person and mm. I am more of a yin person. Mm. And for me, I need more yang to thrive mm. because my yin is beautiful and abundant, but it trapes along the ground unless mm. there's some yang trellis to to 
pin it up against. That's what my mentor says. I think for you, there's a great nourishment and moisturizing of your strong yang with this surrendered yin. Mm. And you speak about slowing down and you speak about mm. connecting with the sand people. and Being receptive. being rece- Exactly, being receptive. You'll have to work at it. You'll yeah, have yeah. to choose. And I guess work at it's the wrong word because you don't want to be working. I'm going to have to work at not working. Right? Work at not working. Well, yeah, because yeah. If, if the intention isn't I am being, I'm receiving, I am mm. nourishing, I'm learning, I'm connecting in this deeper way with these people who I want to discover. If that isn't clear, mm people are going to need your help and you're just going to help them. Mm. And if it is clear, people could need your help and you can say, okay, well, here's a bit of advice, but also good luck. Mm. And mm. I'm also, I'm doing this, you know, right? Mm. Yeah. I think I'm also just looking forward to just connecting with people and savoring that connection, that slowed down kind of playful meandering route through a vine growing in a forest. I mean, not that there's much forest there, but you know, if you know what I mean. Or a snake weaving through the ground. Oh. Yeah, the, the British call it bimbling. Do you use bimbling out no, here? No, but that's a great word. Yeah, bimbling is like ambling about with no specific goal, but just to kind of like bump into people and talk to them. I'm going to bimble. Yeah, bimble. I'm going to bimble, yeah. It's a great English festival term, but basically, oh, I'm having a bit of a bimble. <laughs> what are you doing today? Are you going to go to... It's, oh, no, I'm just going to have a bit of a bimble. Yeah, like yeah. just kind of fumble around and see people and talk to them. But yeah, it seems like this year off could be so nourishing for you. And from what I know about you and from how much you've given to this space, to let yourself be given back to from mm. it mm. is actually, in this case, perhaps a radical act. Mm. Mm. It certainly does feel radical for me, but I, th- I think it's come at the right time and I think it's a good thing and I'm looking forward to bimbling. And to a degree, it kind of almost... And this is possibly one of the issues is that I have boundary issues between myself and Africa burn. And so, <laughs> so there's, there's a kind of, I'm not sure whether, again, my existential crisis is the Burns' existential crisis, but it does feel like that there's a bit of a symmetry in that, is that the kind of slowing down and just looking and feeling through everything is important. Creating space and t- time for reflection, time for self-reflection, time for celebration but also asking what the future is because I you know having been at Burning Man for 18 days this year and I hadn't been for quite a while since 2016 kind of just observing the burn from that's kind of like not being a key person in the organizational structure but working in the organization is that I was kind of watching it and being fairly analytical but watching it at a slower pace and going what is its significance 30 years on and that's the thing. It's become a very well-mapped thing. These burns have become well-mapped. And how do we get off that main highway back into the jungle so that we're using a compass rather than a roadmap? Because that's the generative space. Because otherwise, what are we doing? We're just doing festival culture, aren't we? And I don't want to discount that completely. But for me, my involvement in burns is around as a catalytic potential. And for me, the mechanisms for that is to do that meandering, exploratory thing. Well, I got to say, I think it's time to let it be catalytic to you foremost. Yeah, yeah, got it. You know, that's the thing. (laughs) Go get your burn. And then there's a period of consolidating and deciding what is generated from that. But I'm excited to hear from you and hear what the experience was like. And if you decide to represent publicly what you've learned in your experience, I'd really love to stay up to date with how your experience of the burn is mm. and share it with this community. And it's it's just great learning about your story and your story 
gives me such a richer insight into this burn, which I think is part of what's so beautiful about the regional network itself, mm. is that mm. they're not just regionals because they're in a different country. Mm. They're created by different people mm. that mm. have their own values and their own traumas and their own nuances and things they have to work out and their own cultural contexts that they've been navigating mm. prior to and will continue to. Mm. And so Africa Burn is a really vibrant, interesting place mm. to learn about South Africa and to learn about people like yourself who are trying to make a difference in the world through celebration and through these kind of transformational connections. And of course, it is my favorite thing. And I'm so <laughs> grateful that you do it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. And I'm so keen to chat more. Well, of course we will. And in the meantime, have an amazing burn. Thank you. Wish I could be there, yeah. but I will certainly be back someday to Africa Burn. And I can't wait to hear how your experience is. Super. Thank you, Emon. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor. <laughs>